Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Part, our first episode of 2017. And what a cracking one I've got for you today. The two-time open water swimming world champion, Kerry Ann Payne. Great chat I have with her on this week's show. We talk a whole range of things, including the transition she had to make from swimming in a pool to swimming in open water and some of the hazards which happen i ask her about sharks but there's no problem with sharks it's jellyfish it's all about jellyfish for her and she talks about some of the scars she got some of the different types of pain that they can give and due to her fierce competitiveness how even when she doesn't want to go in the water she still goes in there competes and gives her very best and that is what has made her the best in the world lots of things we cover on the show we talk about her new business venture triscape teaching people how to swim even if they've never swam before and we talk about a lot of different things about how she has to feed during a race the different methods that they do that what happens if she misses the station and how costly that can be we talk about her journey to the olympics including beijing london and in Rio, and of course we go into detail about what made her become a world champ, both in Rome and Shanghai. It's a fun episode with Kerry Ampain, and what a fantastic way to start the new year. How was your new year? Did you spend it well? Did you? Were you around lots of friends and family? Were you very merry, had a few drinks, and now you're back in the gym working hard? The most important thing, though, is I hope you've set your goals you know forget new year's resolutions set your goals even if they're just a daily goal a weekly goal a monthly goal a yearly goal make sure they're written down look at them target them see what you want to achieve in these short time periods because that's what the best in the world do we've listened every single week to all of these top world champions olympic champions former world record holders former world number ones and they tell us they're always doing their goal setting so please try and write down your goals for the year i'd love to hear about them why don't you send me a tweet at richard underscore par on twitter tell me what your goals are for the year i would love to hear from you all right just before i get to the interview with kerry ann i want to say that this show is brought to you by audible audible is one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world 180,000 titles to choose from and guess what you can try out their service for free it's really easy just go to audibletrial.com forward slash best and they'll give you a free 30-day trial of their service that includes one free download so you're getting a free audiobook to listen to how great is that what a great way to start the year by having a brand new audiobook to listen to that site address again is audibletrial.com forward slash best go and give it a go let me know which book you download i love to hear about it i'd love for you to tell me if the book was any good maybe it could be a good book recommendation for me in 2017 we'd love to hear from you on the twitter page at richard underscore par and that audible code one more time is audibletrial.com forward slash best all right let's get to it let's get to my interview with the best in the world kerry ann payne the two-time open water swimming world champion. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Two-time open water world champion, Kerry Ann Payne. Welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr. It's so great to have you on this week's show. 
We've had the Rio Olympics earlier this year, but what have you been up to since then, Kerri-Anne? Oh, since then, I have had the most amazing time. I've spent three weeks in the Caribbean with uh, my new business, uh, going around the Caribbean, teaching people how to swim and uh, doing sporting retreats, which has been so much fun. I've absolutely loved it. It's been a nice respite from, um, you know, getting up at 5 a.m. every morning and going training. So it's been really fun to pass on a bit of my knowledge onto, onto other people who are keen to take up new sporting challenges like open water swimming. Tell, tell us a bit more about your business. When did it start and, and, and how's it all going? Uh, well, my husband, David Carey, he's a, a former three-time Olympian as well. He um, quit his job. He decided it was, it was time to kind of help me um, with this idea that I've had from such a long time. Um, and the business is called Triscape. And it was an idea that I've had and I just didn't really have the skills uh, and the time because I was busy training to, to really set it up. So David uh, left his job and he helped me set up Triscape and that was in December this year. We officially launched in May, uh, which was really exciting. We went down to London and we had quite a few journalists come along and um, people talked to us about our retreat, which we've actually just had out in St. Lucia, out at the body holiday, which was amazing we in two weeks we taught 60 people how to swim which is just mind-blowing that you know that many adults were so keen to learn how to swim and we're realizing that there's so many stigmas attached to to adult swimming stigmas like people either can't do it or they're too scared or they're too embarrassed to do it or they think that you know learning to swim as an adult can be patronizing and all that kind of stuff so we're kind of breaking down all those barriers with with the company triscape and trying to show everyone that it's a life skill that you really need to have. Swimming is this this amazing thing, this amazing thing that can, you know, give you a lot more. It's um, a challenge. It's um, it's a workout as well as when you go away on holiday, you can swim in any kind of sea. Or if you've got kids, you want your kids to learn how to swim. You know, all that sort of stuff. Mm, sounds really interesting. Yeah, I look forward to learning more about that as as you guys grow as a business and start doing more things. Um, like you've just done in St. Lucia sounds great. So what do you tell these people who've never swum before to try and get over that fear? Well, what we try to do is just build their confidence um, and we always start with them in the pool. So no matter what their sporting challenge is, whether it's just literally getting into the pool for the first time or whether they're a master swimmer trying to beat their 50 PB time, for instance, we start in exactly the same way every time, which is um, with this new method of swimming that we've come up with called straight line swimming. And there's three fundamentals in that. The first one is breathing and then body position and then propulsion. And we don't move on from the breathing um, until we get that completely right. So we have everyone in the pool. And like I said, it's about that kind of confidence. So what we do is make sure that people are really comfortable and confident with the most fundamental part of swimming, which is breathing. And it's amazing how many people, um, breathe differently in, in the water than they would do either on land or if they go for a run or anything along those lines. So for us, it's about breaking everything down, making it really simple and easy so people can really, you know, learn for themselves and understand for themselves how is the best way to do it. Because if they learn, if they're learning it from for themselves, they're more likely to remember it. So it's all about gaining that confidence with everybody and um, you know, from from there, once we get them breathing right and we get their body position right, we then add in things like open water swimming onto that. And in the Caribbean, that's obviously really easy because the water is crystal clear and it's nice and warm. Um, but in the in the UK as well, we have some incredible locations for open water swimming and wild swimming, like Loch Lomond and Lake Windermere and all that kind of stuff. So it's I think people love the idea of of taking up an open water swim because there's not anything quite like it. You're really putting yourself under, you know, a bit of pressure because you're, you're out into the open water. Um, but there's this perspective that you get from being in the open water. It's just amazing. It's, there's a real freedom to it and a real kind of sense of achievement and excitement and, you know, a little bit of nerves at the same time because you are doing something very different. Mm. Yeah, I wouldn't add Brighton Beach to those glorious locations. I don't think that's very good for uh, open water swimming. So what you're teaching now, what are the similarities and differences, say, to when you first started swimming? Well, I guess when I first started swimming, I was so lucky that I had a great support team, a support team of my parents who, you know, took me to the pool and left me to it. And I didn't have to, you know, worry too much about... Um, 
the coaching and all that kind of stuff. So my parents just took me to the pool, left me to it. Um, and then when I was at the pool, I had a fantastic coach, a lady called Di Williamson, who really taught me how to love swimming. She taught me how to, um, you know, to all those things, the fundamentals, breathing, body position, how I could make the best out of myself, not worry too much about being the best swimmer in the world. At the time, you know, I was only five or six years old. She was just all about it being fun and exciting. And all my friends were at the pool as well. So that's what I absolutely loved. And that's, you know, kind of what we're trying to recreate with our retreats is that it's this fun environment. Everyone's learning together. Um, swimming is an easy sport. You just need to know, you know, the easier ways of doing it, which is, you know, breaking things down and, and learning from the bottom up rather than starting with arms and legs and then working your way back down. Um, so I guess there's those similarities. And again, I was lucky enough throughout my swimming career to have fantastic coaches who always let me grow rather than pushed me to kind of, well, I guess forced me into doing certain things I didn't want to do. It was all very much kind of an organic process of people um, helping me along the way and supporting me no matter what happened through the ups and, and then through the downs. At which point did you realize you were good? And at which point were you like, I want to take this seriously and, you know, aim for the Olympics and aim for world titles? And I'm not sure that ever really came for me, that kind of that drive and desire to specifically be the one thing. I've always had this amazing dream in my head of, of being an Olympian and, you know, winning an Olympic medal. That's always been kind of this dream in the back of my mind. But as a youngster, I... I had an older brother and sister and my brother's nine years old than me so you can imagine as a little kid he was not at all interested in this little girl who was you know idolizing him basically and he was a nine-year-old boy he was like get off who are you I don't want anything to do with you and you know by the time he was 14 I was five so that became really annoying for him that he had this little sister but I absolutely idolized him and all I wanted to do was do what he was doing and that was swimming so for me it was a really easy process to just kind of get into the pool and I was always trying to do well so I could prove to him that I was worth, you know, like, look at me, look at me, I've done really well. <laughs> um, so I was always, you know, concentrating on that rather than actually concentrating on who I was racing or um, the time specifically that I was doing. And, um, you know, every time, every now and then I did a really good race. He was like, oh, well done. That's quite impressive. And I'd be like, woohoo, he spoke to me. <laughs> it makes him sound really bad. He's, I mean, we're really close now and <laughs> he's a, an amazing brother and, and my sister's amazing as well. But, you know, you can imagine at the time, a 14 year old boy is not interested in his little sisters at all. So for me, it was always about that. And I always get asked the question, um, do you know, what would you have been if you weren't a swimmer? And the answer always categorically is I was always going to be a swimmer. I knew that that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know how far I could take it, but I knew that this was something I was going to work really hard at doing. And that's exactly what I did. I just, um, you know, kept pushing, kept pushing, kept working. Um, when I was younger, like I said, I had my brother to kind of um, be the one that I was doing stuff for. And then when I got older, um, I had a bit of a, a dark patch where I had no reason. I didn't really know why I was swimming. Um, the Olympics seemed quite far out of reach. I had a couple of bad competitions. I wasn't swimming very well. Training was getting all a bit much and a bit boring, and I wasn't enjoying it. So I guess that was probably the hardest time of my career for me was um, around about the 2006 marker when I was sort of 18 years old. Um, had been swimming all my life, didn't know anything different. I was doing 800 freestyles at the time, uh, went to the Commonwealth Games, I came fourth. So at the time for me, that was quite a devastating um, result because I was so far off my PB. If I had gone anywhere near my PB, I would have meddled. And of the whole England team on that at that Commonwealth Games, I was one of two people that didn't win a medal. So, you know, a whole team winning medals, everyone was over the moon. And I was one of two people that didn't win a medal. So it was a really tough time for me. But um, my coach kind of could see that things were taking taking their toll. Training wasn't going so well. I was missing training here and there, which is really unlike me. I was never like that at all. And then, you know, eventually something had to give and we decided to, together, we decided to, to make a change. And the options were to change to the 400 medley. Um, there was a competition in Sheffield where I could go and do a different event, the 400 individual medley, which is 100 of every stroke. Or I could go out to Australia and I could try this brand new thing called open water swimming and uh, and do a 10K. And, you know, 
although it seems quite a tricky choice to make, I decided that Australia seemed like a bigger draw than doing 400 meters um, in Sheffield. And, and that was really the beginning of my Olympic journey from there. Okay, so what were the main differences you immediately could see between being in the pool and doing open water swimming? What were some of the, the major training differences? Did you have to change anything as far as your diet? What, what things were involved when you made that transition? There was tons involved with that transition. The first one, I was so nervous that we were out in Australia and I was just, you know, didn't really know what to do. Thankfully, my training partner at the time, Cassie Patton, she had already done a couple of 10K, so she had a rough idea of what was going on. And, um, you know, there was all sorts of things like I was going from an eight and a half minute race in the 800 freestyle to a two hour race in the open water. So involved with that was obviously swimming two hours non-stop, but also having to feed during the swim. And, you know, people, whenever I talk about feeding, people assume that, you know, there's like tea and coffee and <laughs> things like that. It's really not quite like that. It would be amazing if it was. But, you know, feeding essentially is trying to get a little bit of carbohydrates and caffeine sort of gels or a drink or something into your system as quickly as you can whilst you're trying to swim. So, you know, I was really nervous on how this was all going to go. Um, my first swim, I didn't really know what. How does it go, Kerri Ann? I've, I've never seen it, so I can't really imagine it. Yeah, so basically what happens, there's two options, really. One option is you, um, along the course, they have these big pontoons with all the coaches on, and they have, um, like, a long pole with, a, like, a bucket at the end, and in there is a drink or it's a carbohydrate gel or something along those lines. And you swim them up at this very specific part of the course and you take these gels and or whatever it is. And then, you know, you turn onto your back for a split second, take as much as you can and throw the bottle and then carry on swimming. And um, that's one option. Or the second option is that you carry the gels on you. So swimming costumes, you know, that have like the big circle on the back, you kind of stuff them in there and hope that they almost last for, for the whole of the 10K. But the reason why I, I choose the second option to have them on me is it means that I can have those gels at any time. I don't have to wait for a very specific part of the race where everybody's going into feed. I can feed at any part of the race, which essentially means I can take on this carbohydrate gel essentially while I'm still swimming. So, you know, you can take it out, turn onto your back, rip it open, take in a, you know, as much of the whole gel as I can and then carry on swimming. So, for me, that that option seems a lot less um, disruptive to, to the race and to my, my performance and, and um, to my kind of rhythm of swimming as well. Yeah, the the one where you have to stop, it almost sounds like a Formula One pit stop and get really tactical. So, yeah, please continue. You were saying that the other things uh, that were different before I interrupted you. Yeah, so the, the feeding part of it, that's one part. And the other thing we learned from that swim, um, when we train in the pool, if you can imagine we train in a 25-meter pool or the Olympic distance pool, which is 50 meters, if we're swimming 10K in a 25-meter pool, that's about 400 lengths, which seems like a lot. So mentally, you have to deal with doing 400 lengths. And then if you're training constantly in a 25-meter pool, every turn that we do at the wall we have a little break essentially because we're turning, you know, our, our legs come in and we kind of push off off the wall. And on that push off, we're getting about five meters um, every single turn that we do. So 400 turns, we're swimming, we're not swimming for about five to seven meters of that, you know, and 400 times five equals a lot of meters that we're not actually swimming. But we get into the open water, we don't have a wall that we can turn on. We don't have anything else that we can push off on essentially we are swimming on our you know swimming on our fronts for two hours solid and that was probably one of the hardest things for me uh, when I got out of the race was really understanding why my back was so sore why my shoulders were sore because I was swimming 10,000 meters pretty hard without having a single break um so then we learned how to kind of counteract that and how to change that and throughout the years actually swimming in an endless pool so you know the pools that are like a, a big kind of tank and there's water pushing you so you're actually staying in the same place uh, um, yeah. for me that seemed really really boring um, <laughs> i know that swimming up and down the pool can seem really boring to a lot of people but at least you've got something to do you can talk to people you can stop um but you know mentally i had to really force myself to get over that uh, and to get into these endless pools because it was the only other way we could recreate the open water 
but in a controlled environment. So we can control the temperature of the water, the temperature of the air. Um, I mean, I live up in Edinburgh, so swimming in the sea, um, there's not many months of the year that I can actually swim outdoors up in Scotland because it's really cold. So we had to figure out another way to recreate that, which was swimming in these um, in these endless pools. Um, yeah, it takes it took so long for me to really kind of understand not to understand, I knew why it was a good thing, but it took a while for me to really be okay with that being the reason why I'm doing this is to directly help my performance. Um, and once I eventually understood that, it was um, it was really refreshing to know why I was going into the endless pool, why I was doing that part of the training, because it was ultimately helping out with my Olympic preparation, which was, you know, four, eight, 12 years, 12 years in the distance. Um, so in terms of the actual swimming, that was the part of it that we 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 kind of it took me by surprise the very first time I did it. But you know, realizing we needed to change things in and around there. Mm, it sounds like a, a swimming pool treadmill, but you just can't listen to music or podcasts. Absolutely. <laughs> so what what about Australia? How was it being down there? Like we've had the um, world record holder in paddleboarding. Uh, on before and Damien Ryder and you know obviously in the last year there's been quite a few shark attacks against surfers have you ever had anything like that with any sharks or any other animals when you've been in um in the open water at all thankfully no sharks which is good and generally when we do these open water swims there's tons and tons of boats around and uh, animals in in the sea anyone animals anyway that can hear don't like the noise of the boats, so they tend to not come anywhere near us, which is great. But we were in Melbourne, which doesn't have too many shark attacks on, on this occasion. But um, I went back to Melbourne about three or four months later to do the World Championships. So exactly the same location. It was just four months later. Um, this was my second ever 10K swim, and it was the World Championships. And um, when we got to the venue um, we didn't really know too much about the course other than we'd been there a year before and we didn't think we needed to swim in it because we'd already trained in it, like I said, about four months previous. So race day came along and um, when we stood on the pontoon to, to dive in for, for the World Championship race, we just saw thousands and thousands and thousands of jellyfish. They were huge. They were like dinner plate sized jellyfish on the top the bottom tentacles were really fat and quite short, but you know you could just see them everywhere. They were they weren't clear like quite a lot of jellyfish are. They were kind of white, so you could definitely see them, and they were everywhere. So there was fifty girls stood on this pontoon. We're all looking at each other before the start of the race, going, "What are we doing?" And this was only my second swim, so I was kind of a bit terrified that there were these jellyfish in there, and the fact that we'd swam in there like three months previous and there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, there's these thousands of jellyfish. So all the girls, you know, two minutes before the start, looking at the water going, what are we doing here? This is the most ridiculous thing we've ever done. And um, all of us saying exactly the same thing to each other. And then the funniest thing, as soon as the starting thing went off, it was like everybody's brain just switched from what am I doing to competition mode. Everyone just dives straight in. So we had to dive into these thousands of jellyfish. And um, I must admit, the first few stings I got were interesting and I probably screamed quite a few times down that first sort of thousand meter uh, loop but actually these jellyfish in particular were just a bit like nettle stings so it wasn't like a searing pain it was just it was just annoying um, and it, again at the end of the race we were all talking to each other saying like oh if one person had got out we'd have all got out kind of thing but that was never going to happen because nobody took the chance to get out anyway um, but yes, yeah, so that was my first, my second, sorry, my second ever 10K swim. And actually, in hindsight now, I'm, I'm quite glad that was that experience because it didn't really ever get any worse than that. Um, jellyfish are definitely the thing that as open water swimmers we hate the most because they're not, they're obviously living, but, you know, there's no brain and there's no heart and all that kind of stuff. So they don't, they're not scared away by anything. Um, so there's nothing you can do when they come in. You can't like take them out back into the sea. That's what the the wind does. The wind brings them in, and the currents bring them in and out and stuff like that. So it's just one thing that no matter what the conditions are, if they're there, you just have to swim through with, through them and, and deal with it. So that was probably one of the hardest things to deal with on my second swim. But it really set me up for the rest of my career because um, it only got 
worse on one occasion. And again, again, was that was totally jellyfish. And this time um, in Australia, again, believe it or not, but this was in Perth. So um, Perth is quite notorious for shark attacks as well out there. And um, it took a lot of convincing for us to do this 5K swim, which 5K takes roughly about an hour. And uh, it was myself uh, and three other Scottish athletes. Um, so we were away on a Scottish trip and I was there. And they, the Scottish team very kindly let me join them, which was very good of them because I'm from Manchester. So um, that was always an interesting conversation. But they, um, the, there was four of us and we were like, right, guys, this is, this is the swim. And we got into the start of the swim and there was, it was glorious. The sea was warm. It was beautiful. It was blue. It was perfect. Um, there must have been about 50 or 60 people that started the swim. And in that first sort of five minutes of us all getting in, there wasn't a single jellyfish anywhere. And then we started the race. It must have been about 50 meters after the start of the race. The jellyfish just started. And there again, there was thousands of them. But these ones were a little worse than the ones that we had in Melbourne. And they stung really bad. Like it was worse than anything I've ever had before. Um, and again, because we're so competitive, at the end of the swim, every one of us was like, oh, I was waiting for you to get out. And I was waiting for you to get out. And in the end, none of us got out. We just swam through these jellyfish for an hour. And um, yeah, they were so bad, those jellyfish, that a couple of us have got scars from them. So I've got a few scars on my arm from those jellyfish. They're really bad. But um, yeah, I'll never do that again. I'll never swim through those types of jellyfish ever again. That's the one and um, the first time in my whole life where I do kind of regret doing that swim because they were just awful. So jellyfish for me are worse than anything else out there. Oh, it sounds like a world championship version of I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. <laughs> that's just, oh, that's, that's horrible. Did anyone complain to the organizers after that happened? They did, but there's nothing they could do. It's, you know, we were all, it was all of it was our choice to swim. And that's the thing that happens every time. It's, it's my choice to swim. I'm just too competitive to stop swimming and um, a few people did stop they got out they didn't they didn't carry on swimming but it's just my own um competitive instincts that kept me in um but yeah it was just one of those things uh, i've never actually wanted a shark alarm to go off more in my whole life <laughs> because if there was a shark alarm it means you get out the water straight it's just ridiculous here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Best in the World Podcast with Richard Parr. More from Kerry Ann Payne in just a moment, the Olympic silver medalist. But I just want to say that today's show, as well as Audible, is brought to you by Sportachino. Sportachino is a brand new sports breakfast show. It's broadcast every single weekday morning from 8 GMT on Facebook, Periscope, and on YouTube. 
Live 8 GMT. I am your host and I discuss all the different things related to sport. Perhaps it's the results from the night before. So let's say your team lost. Get involved. Tell me how annoyed you were. Were the right substitutions made? Was the referee a disgrace? Let me know. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Sportuccino every day. And then we also do long-form interviews talking to people from across the world. We've had people from Uganda, Singapore, you name the country, Qatar. We've had them on the program. We've got lots planned for you in 2017. So check out Sportuccino. It's sportuccino.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-U-C-C-I-N-O.com, sportuccino.com. In fact, have a look at the resources page. Lots of information there on exactly how we make the show and all that goes into it. So take a look at that, the resources page on sportuccino.com. They are a sponsor of the show today on The Best in the World. All right, let's return to our interview with Kerry Ann Payne. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. So after that first World Championships, you were, then went to Beijing in 2008, got a silver. How was that whole experience for you? It was incredible. So two years previous, like I said, I was in a really dark place. I didn't think I was going to make the Olympic team. It all seemed quite far and out of reach. And then all of a sudden, I was doing 10Ks and I'd, I'd made the Olympic Games for the 10K. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe I've done this. And so we went to the, the pool trials for, um, for the Olympic Games, and that was in, um, when was that? That was in um, just after the World Championships qualifiers for, for, the, for my open water. So I'd, I was, you know, just about two or three weeks had already qualified for the Olympics. So there was no pressure on me, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to go to the pool trials and just see how I do, just go and have fun and really enjoy it. And at that time, I had, when I started doing 10Ks, I also did start doing different events in the pool. So I did the 200 and the 400 individual medley, which I mentioned earlier. And we went to the, the pool trials. And the very first race was the 200 individual medley. And I still don't quite know how I did it, but I managed to qualify for the Olympics in that race as well. So I've now qualified for a race that was 2 minutes and 12 seconds long as well as a race that was two hours long. Oh, wow. uh, so for me, the difference in that was just crazy. And then later on that week, I qualified for the 400 individual medley as well. So all of a sudden, I'd gone from not thinking I was going to qualify for the Olympics at all to qualifying for three different events in two separate sports, essentially, because open water swimming is pretty much a different sport to pool swimming. So it was just an absolutely amazing experience. And I, and I loved the trials of both the open water and the, and the pool trials as well. It was just really special to have had the trials to make the time, that feeling that you get when everybody's saying, well done, and that's amazing. And I can't believe you've done that. My parents crying and being really proud. And um, at the time, my boyfriend, David, who is my husband now, he'd also qualified for a second Olympics. So yeah, we were just all absolutely over the moon. It was an amazing couple of months. And then, in the lead up to the to the Olympics, you know, um, it was my first one. We got all the kits, and that was amazing. Got like three huge whole bags worth of kit. I didn't know what to do with, but you know, you get told to take all this stuff with you, so you take it all with you. <laughs> and we flew out to to Beijing, and and for me, when I told people about the 10K, no, because it, it was the first time it had been in the Olympics, nobody knew what this crazy event was. Um, so I was explaining to everybody, you know, in the lead up to it, what open water moon was. We swam for 10K, we swam out in the open and everybody was like, you are crazy, <laughs> which essentially, I guess we probably are. Um, but it was it was really, you know, amazing to be part of history. Essentially, we were the very first and um, the inaugural 10K for, for the Olympic Games. And um, I guess at the time we kind of revolutionized the sport because we were the pool swimmers myself, Cassie Pan and David Davies, we were all pool swimmers and we'd all swam races in the pool and at the Olympics as well. And we were transferring those skills now into the open water. Um, and what we did at that competition is, is all three of us won an Olympic medal, which was, you know, amazing and crazy and wonderful all at the same time. Um, my David won a a bronze, uh, sorry, a silver in the, in the 10K. I won a silver and Cassie Patton won a bronze. So, it was just, you know, that whole 
week just is a bit of a blur of just <laughs> smiling and happy and just, you know, not being like, wow, did that happen? And, you know, putting a medal under your pillow and waking up in the morning and being like, oh, no, no, it definitely did happen. It wasn't a dream. It's definitely real. Um, just it was incredible. And coming home and everybody all of a sudden having watched the race, people I never thought about, you know, every time you mention I, I swam the Olympics and everybody I spoke to, I'm like, oh, what event was it? The 10K, they're like, oh, that crazy one with the Russian girl and the other girl and the British girl. And yeah, it was just amazing. And for me, one of my proudest moments actually was um, was going to the London Olympics um, and walking out to 30,000 people around Hyde Park watching open water swimming. And it was only four years previous to that when I said I was in, you know, telling people what open water swimming was and nobody knew anything about it. So in four years, we'd gone from no one knowing anything about it to 30,000 people choosing to come and watch an open water swim. And then the number of swims that people and the number of events that are now running through the country. I mean, something like the Great Swim Series has 25,000 people doing their events every single year, which is mind blowing that. In only eight years, the sport has completely changed and there's so many people doing it now. And it's just amazing to see absolutely one of one of my proudest moments today is helping to create this kind of legacy of open water swimming around the world. Yeah, and you did that certainly in 2009 and 2011 when you became a world champion at that. How how great was that experience? Oh, amazing. Um, you know, what I did after um, after the Beijing Olympics was kind of I sat down with my team and it, it was a really fantastic moment to sit there and be like, yeah, we did really well. And then there was that competitive edge in me that came out again. And I was like, actually, I know I can beat that Russian girl. I mean, going into the Olympics, she was the eight times world champion. So she she was definitely the best swimmer and, and she pretty much had that race to lose. Um, if you know what I mean. So she, she should really have won it, which is exactly what she did. But I thought, you know what, I can beat her. I know I can. I've got, I know I've got a bit more in me. Beijing, I'd only done about four or five races. And, you know, I know I knew I had another whole year until the world championship. So we sat down with the team, sports scientist and the psychologist, my coach and um, the nutritionist. And we sat down together and we were like, right, this is what we need to do. And um, what can we do to make it better? And we, we set about going through as many races as I could to try and um, to really understand what it was that could make me a better swimmer. And, um, you know, the training was, was amped up a bit. Was it, you know, we were trying new things in the pool. We were trying new things on land, trying to recreate as much as we could the kind of the, the race and, and how we could simulate that to make my race better. Uh, so going into the World Championships in um, 2009 in Rome, I was really confident with my preparation. What were those actual things that you pinpointed, Kerry? And what were the things that you improved on and worked harder on once you've had once you had that chat? Yeah, so it was things like in the gym. It was um, I stopped doing weights and did a bit more sort of cardiovascular stuff. So to be a long distance athlete or an endurance athlete, you don't need to be mega muscly it's just about being lean but about being strong so making sure all the little muscles certainly in my shoulders and in my back and lower back specifically were as strong as they could possibly be because in the open water there's a lot of other things you need to do like sighting is a big part of it so you're constantly lifting your head up while you're swimming which puts a lot of pressure on the rest of your body and um, while you're swimming for 10k and i'm looking up sort of every six to eight strokes so you can imagine how many times we're looking up during a two-hour race. And so that was one part of it. And we were really working on strengthening up those those muscles. And in the pool itself, we also worked on um, very specific training. So it was a bit it was it wasn't so much training for an eight hundred anymore, which is what I was always doing and what the norm for distance swimmers was, was training for an eight hundred, because that before the Beijing Olympics, that was the longest event you could do. So training then became a bit more about doing um, slightly longer, harder um, main sort of sessions um, as well. And, and one part of training, which I absolutely hated until probably the last three or four years, until again, I really understood why it was good for me to do it, was doing long swims. So on a Friday morning, 
without fail, it was always a 5K straight. And I used to hate it. Like the thought of swimming for 5K in a pool, up and down, up and down, no music, no one to talk to, nothing to look at other than the, other than the clock, trying to remember how many laps I'd done, all that kind of stuff. It was my least favorite thing, but it was part of the training that we had just had to do. So um, kind of that was another part of it. And then the nutrition side of things as well. So we learned that carbo loading kind of one to two days before the race was beneficial because it meant that um, our glycogen stores were, were topped up and they were full so that when we were doing the swim, if we missed a feed or if something didn't go quite well, we knew that psychologically as well, we knew that the, the body was as prepared as it could be for, for that sort of swim itself. Um, so yes, we tried a whole new range of things and I, I traveled the world, went to Hong Kong, went to Milan, went to Seville, went you know all over the world, China, um, to try all these new races and just practice different things. And um, yeah, so going into the World Championships, I was really confident in all of that preparation that I had done. And I guess there's a couple of mind, mind games as well in there. I, I knew that I was a target because I was... Um, a silver medalist and uh, from the you know previous year so one of the favorites to win and um in a couple of the swims before that a few people had tried to stop me from getting to the front of the pack which is where at the time where my preferred position was to be leading the race so i kind of knew that i needed to change something slightly or else if people stopped me from getting to the front then you know it was it was always going to be a bit tricky so what we did was um when we were in the preparation before the race started, I was wearing a bright orange swimming cap that had Great Britain and it had my name Payne on the side. So in the whole preparation, that was when we did our last briefing, when everyone saw us, when we were getting ready for the swim. So everyone kind of associated me with wearing this bright orange hat. And um, it was probably, so we like got into the water, we're just about to start the race and everybody was focusing on the, the race starter rather than focusing on anybody else. And with about 30 seconds to go, I changed positions and I actually had a black hat underneath <laughs> the orange one. So I whipped off the orange hat to just have this black hat underneath. And as we started the race, so nobody saw me do it. I just, before I even started the race, I'd taken this orange hat off and I had this black one on underneath. So I started the swim and everyone, I could see everyone looking for the orange hat and no one could find it. And what it meant was I was kind of on the outside and managed to get out in front of everybody and um it wasn't until a little while I think people realized that I'd changed hats at the last second and I was actually now in this black hat but I it was too late because I was already in front um so yeah little mind games like that was um was quite fun and uh yeah and it worked a treat because on that particular race I came out with the gold medal on that one Oh, amazing. And and then you did similar in, in 2011. I'm sure you couldn't play that same trick again in, in Shanghai, <laughs> no. could you? Uh, so what 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 was different there? Was, was it anything to do with confidence or it was just a good race? How were you able to retain that title? On that occasion, again, um, I've, I've thought quite long and hard about why that race was so good. And, and it was, again, because of my preparation. I just had an absolutely amazing year. My training was outstanding in terms of the rate the training I was doing um I didn't race very much that year because I thought that for me training was the thing that was going to help me get to the to the top again and then I needed to change other things which meant that training became my main focus so I actually only raced twice that year and uh, the qualifiers and then actually the world championships themselves but I spent so much time just in the pool training doing harder swimming for longer um, and I must admit, you know, we changed a couple of the hard sessions that we were doing to be, as a, again, a bit more specific to open water swimming. So instead of sessions being, you know, 30, 100, say, going as fast as we could, um, that's what we, you know, on a certain time, that was kind of the very standard session that everyone does, if you like, as a as a distance swimmer. You do 30, 100s, best average on say one and a half minutes, but actually in a 10K, I don't get a chance to rest. I don't, there's no wall for me to stand on at the end to have a 20, 30 second rest at the end. And I'm never actually swimming at the times that I was doing this, you know, I was say going around about one minute and one second for a hundred freestyle, really pushing it as hard as I could. 
But when I'm in a 10K, I'm actually never able to swim at that pace. So we decided what we needed to do was change sessions around. So the session changed to a lot shorter reps, but actually a lot shorter rest as well. So I was swimming at race pace, if you like, which was like a 105 to a 108 base for every 100, but only getting five to 10 seconds rest in between. So everything then became more about short rest as opposed to swimming as fast as I could in the pool. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that really does. And so you then went into the London Olympics as the two-time world champion. Did it add any extra pressure, not only being the world champion, but also being on home soil? I didn't feel any pressure, if I'm honest. I um, I was very prepared. I felt um, prepared for the pressure, if you like. My Mentally, I was in a really great place. I had a great psychologist, a guy called Simon Middlemass, and he we worked really hard together to make sure that the pressure didn't, I didn't feel this pressure on me. Um, and I loved the build up to the Olympics was amazing. Everybody in the UK was just so excited about the Olympics and it was just incredible. I absolutely loved it. It was like being in a different country at one point. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. It was just outstanding. I felt like a complete rock star, which, you know, I guess only rock stars feel, but it was amazing. Just as soon as you mentioned the word Olympian, People just went crazy. And my mom, um, she got to carry the Olympic torch as well, which was amazing. So she was part of the whole process as well. And oh, it was just it was just incredible. I'll never have a year like that ever again. It was just amazing. Um, the thing, though, that I hadn't really prepared for, um, and again, that year I didn't really do very many races. I only did the qualified. Well, actually, I qualified already for the um, – so – the world championships in 2011 is where I qualified for the Olympic games. So I'd qualified a whole year out and had a little bit of, um, a back injury and then a kidney infection in the beginning of that year. So not an ideal, um, preparation in the lead up to the Olympics, but I knew I still had a, a good chunk of time to get prepared and get ready, which I did again in those kind of four or five months before the Olympics, I had a great run in, um, for the Olympics, but, what I hadn't prepared for um, was plan B. So like I said, my earlier, my preferred race tactic was to be out in front and to be leading. Um, and that was the plan. There was no plan A, B or C. It was just the plan, which was to get out in front and to lead the race and to finish first, essentially. Um, and that was probably my naivety. So I, you know, it was my second Olympic Games. I was 24 at the time thinking I was um, a mature athlete but in hindsight I wasn't I was just planning for <clears throat> for the for the one thing whereas I probably should have planned for you know a all the way down to z essentially and when the plan didn't work out I from the very start there was another swimmer next to me the whole way and she was um quite pushy and she was a bit more rough than I was prepared like I was used to normally it was me out in front by myself um, and she was kind of a bit different and she wouldn't let me go into the feeding station, which was also quite tricky because I felt like I needed to go in. And um, when eventually I found the opportunity to go in, I missed the feed and it didn't go very well. And because I took an extra split second to go back and get it, it meant that all the girls behind me swam over the top of me because they were already moving forward and, and going for the rest of the swim. So I had gone into this feeding station and joint first. And then was churned out underneath all these girls in about 12th place. So all of a sudden, I was in the mix. I was in the pack. I was in the fighting, which I'd never really prepared for, never really done before. And um, that, for me, was probably one of the hardest moments um, of my open water career was making the decision, you know, everybody saw what happened that watched the race. So I could easily have gone, Oh, well, you know, everyone's come over me and I got a black eye and I got, you know, everyone saw what happened. Um, but again, that competitive edge and the fact that there was 30,000 people there watching me and I could hear them, I could see their faces because we were in Hyde park and surf time, which is quite a small, um, quite a small venue. And I could see people's faces shouting, go carry on. And I was like, right, no, I've got to do this. So, I had to just kind of man up, if you like, and, and deal with the fact that I was getting hit and punched and stuff and just work my way back up. Um, so, you know, it was about a lap and a half to go and I was in 12th place and all I could do was just work as hard as I could to get back up. And I ended up finishing that race in fourth place and only 0.4 of a second behind 
a bronze medal and only four seconds behind um, behind the winner. So I'm proud of the performance that I, I did from kind of getting punched and hit in the face and, you know, working my way back up to fourth place. But yeah, in terms of the debrief, if you like, the review after that, we all realized the whole team, but myself, you know, as the main culprit of that, of just being kind of set in my ways and only planning for one plan rather than planning for the rest of it. And then you took a little break afterwards, didn't you? Kind of a, a refresh, traveled the world. Where where did you go? What places did you see? And in some ways, did it help inspire your new business, Triscape? Yeah, it absolutely did. Um, when I traveled the world, for me, it was about kind of learning, again, learning new things, so putting myself under pressure. So it was a very um, strategic year off. And, and I knew that I wanted to go to Rio, but I just needed to take some time away from the, the day in, day out training that I was doing. Um, so what we did was I trained three or four times a week, um, which is, you know, amazing compared to the 12, uh, to the 10 sessions I was doing every week. So I felt really refreshed only kind of keeping, dipping my toe into the water and all the races that I chose around the world were ones where either it was cold or whether it was a really kind of violent race, if you like, in, 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 in inverted commas. Um, where it was boys and girls together or whether it was just something different, something I'd never really experienced before. So my first swim that year was out to South Africa for a swim I've done many times before, something called the Midmar Mile, which is a mile swim from one side of a lake to the other side. And um, the 16,000 people do that race every weekend. So, And it was a race I used to do because I was born in South Africa, a race I used to do as a kid. Uh, so it was really nice to go back and do that. But um, on this particular occasion, I decided I was going to do the eight-mile club, which is there's eight miles, eight one-mile swims over the weekend, four on Saturday, four on Sunday. And I decided I was going to do every single one of them rather than just the one which I normally would do and um, and still try and race that one that I would the kind of the main race for me, if you know what I mean, to try and win the race again. And, and that's what I did. So I swam eight miles in one weekend, which was um, quite tricky, but great. It was great fun and I, and I really enjoyed it. So I was getting like 20 minutes rest between having to do a mile and then get back across the lake to the other side and then swim back again and get back to the other side. So that was kind of the first part of it. I traveled then to San Francisco where I did something called the Tiburon Mile, which is over in um, Mill Valley, which is a really nice, picturesque, beautiful place. And it wasn't until after the swim that I found out that Tiburon actually means shark in Spanish, <laughs> which I'm glad I found out afterwards, not before. Well, at least it wasn't jellyfish. Yeah, there's no jellyfish, thankfully. But this swim was really cold, so it's in in you know in the sea there, which is you know about 15 degrees Celsius, and it was no wetsuit race, and it was boys and girls together at the same time, and again it was point to point um, swim. So we, um, I just remember standing at the start line and it was pretty cold and everyone was jumping around trying to get a bit warm knowing we all had to sprint and this particular race the Tiburon Mile they invite all of the university kids um the swimming the swimming guys and the water polo guys from all of the neighboring universities so the first row was um the elites as they called us and the second row were the kind of the varsity water polo players and swimmers and um I was stood in this front row as the guy was calling, can we have all the elites to the front, please? All the elites. So um, everyone was kind of squeezing past and I was like, oh, excuse me, sorry, can I just get through? And kind of like stood there. <clears throat> just behind me was the the first team of the water polo team for um, Berkeley, which is a really good university just around the corner from where we were. And they were all going, who do these elites think they are? Coming here and like standing in front of us like, right, that's it. I'm going to do all of them on this first swim. And I was like, oh, no, please don't hurt me. And the thing with water players is that they're really fast and really quick for about 50 meters. And then the lactic acid sets in because they always set off too fast. And then, yeah, after that. So essentially the first 100 meters of the race involved all of these boys swimming over the top of all of us. And then 50 meters after that, all of the swimmers then swimming over the top of all of these water players because they started to struggle because they swam so fast. But what it meant was that I really had to learn how to keep my position, how to keep my place, not get swum over and not let that kind of stuff bother me. Mm, so yeah. that was kind of the races I did. 
And then another one, I went out to Brazil um, to do this swim called the King and Queen of the Sea, which is in the Copacabana. So it's my first taste of swimming in the Copacabana in Rio. And it was a relay swim, which I did with one of my friends from South Africa. And it was 500 meter swim with like a 50 meter run. And we had to do that three times each. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. So 500 meters of a sprint, which takes around about seven, eight minutes. Um, so it was a sprint to do this 500 meter course and then a beach run, a beach sprint of about 100 meters. So the reason that swimmers don't run is because we spend a lot of the time in the water. So having done the sprint and then running onto the beach to pass, to get this baton from our other teammate and only getting sort of seven or eight minutes rest in between and having to do it all again and then having to do it all again. Oh, it was just so hard, but amazing fun. I absolutely loved it, but it was one of the hardest swims I've ever had to do. Mm. Oh, I know we've run nearly run out of time. Well, we've gone over time, way over time, but it's been so great to hear from you, Corey. I just want to ask you two quick more questions. Firstly, how was how did Rio go for you? Rio, I generally coming out of the swim was happy with, with the performance because I couldn't have done any more. I turned every stone, crossed every I, dotted every T, uh, sorry, dotted every I and crossed every T. Um, it just wasn't that my conditions. It was really flat and it was really calm, um, which suits the the really fast pool swimmer like Sharon Rowandell, who was the girl that won it. Um, whereas I prefer the real rough waves and you know a little bit colder water. So in terms of conditions, it, it wasn't in my favor. But in terms of the race itself, I couldn't be happier with the performance because I did everything I could. Um, and it was just incredible swimming in the Copacabana as my Olympic venue was just amazing. Mm, that sounds fantastic. Well, it's been so great to learn from you today, Kerry Ann. Just before you go, could you maybe tell us how we can continue to follow your journey on social media, maybe how we can um, follow you and learn more about Triscape? And am I right in hearing that you also might be bringing out a cookbook? <laughs> Um, yeah, so the cookbook is now turned into more of a, a YouTube channel. So I'll be um, hopefully very soon launching a brand new YouTube channel, which will be called Healthy is Tasty, which is all about um, my journey in, in terms of food um, and also lifestyle things on there as well. So all of my social media handles are Carrie Ann Payne. So I'm on Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and I will eventually be on YouTube as well. Um, and all of that kind of leads into and helps me with, with my business, Triscape, as well. So our website is triscape.me. Uh, we're just about to launch our brand new website on Friday. So we're very excited about that. All, all of the, the new bits and pieces have been added to it. And we're really proud of the new of everything that we're, we're doing now, which involves masterclasses, one-to-one coaching, and um, a common Triscape series as well. So if you head to our website around about Friday lunchtime, Everything will be on there. Well, we will definitely check all of that out. Can't wait to see the website. Kerry Ann Payne, thank you for being on today's show and thank you for being the best in the world. Thanks for having me. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Thanks again to Kerry Ann Payne for being on this week's Best in the World with Richard Parr, the first of 2017. What a way to start the year. Well, Kerry Ann is our first open water swimmer on the podcast, but we have had other swimmers from in the pool, such as Natalie Coglin, such as Nathan Adrian, such as Nick Gillingham. Go back and listen to those episodes. They're all on iTunes. They're all on Stitcher. They're all at richardpart.net. Go back and listen to them. And let me know what you think of them on my Twitter page, Richard at underscore par. And if you are listening to it on iTunes or on Stitcher, what would really help me out a lot is if you gave us a rating and review. It means so much. Even if you don't like the show, give me a one star. Tell me it's terrible. Tell me where I can improve. But if you love it, give me a five star rating. That really helps. Give me a good review. That really helps. I'd love it if you just spent, you know, it's a couple minutes of your time to try and do something which matters so much to me and us here at The Best in the World. All right, we've got another great episode coming for you next week. Go and check out my Twitter page and also have a look at the Facebook page, Best in the World with Richard Parr. And also check out my website, richardparr.net. All right, have a wonderful 2017. Write those goals down and I'll be back with you next week on a Wednesday for the Best in the World. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 